Before we dive into Oscar glamour, we'd just like to suggest that if you're looking for a way to help the people of Ukraine, in particular children, donating to the non-profit Voices of Children is a great way to do that. Visit them at voices.org.ua slash en. This is the annual Academy Awards special episode of our pop culture and current events show, Daddy Issues. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. Every year, well, since last year, <laughs> ahead of the Oscars, we take a look at how fathers show up on film in the movies that received nominations and some of the important ones that didn't. And we also speculate on who'll win on March 27, obviously. This year, in general, father figures appeared to show up as a source of tender support, as opposed to last year when they were slightly more tyrannical. Who knows what the reason for that is? Maybe we were all a little worn down by the pandemic and violent political upheaval. Maybe we'll figure it out next year, looking back. Nominated films like Coda, King Richard, Dune, Flea, Raya and the Dragon, and Canto, Mitchells versus the Machine, and Luca all featured fathers of characters who are classic outliers. There's a lot less bullying and emotional infancy among these characters and a lot more kind-hearted helping of those who deserve a voice. It was also a big year for female directors contemplating gender norms. Maggie Gyllenhaal's film adaptation of Elena Ferrante's novel, The Lost Daughter, explores an ambivalent mother who leaves her family in pursuit of her own academic career in a narrative that is traditionally attached to fathers. Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog, set in the 1920s American West, explores repressed rage and desire, internalized homophobia, particularly femphobia, the complexities of mentorship, and history repeating itself. It's also the most nominated film of the year. There were some honorable mentions in the father sphere that weren't nominated but otherwise merit discussion such as James Bond's transformation into a first-time father in No Time to Die, and Joaquin Phoenix's Into a First-Time Uncle and the delightful Come On, Come On, directed by sensitive hipster dad Mike Mills. 2021 was also the year when two young sons of late beloved actors made their debuts in films by creators who had famously worked with their fathers, Cooper Hoffman, son of Philip Seymour Hoffman, co-starred in Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, and of course, Michael Gandolfini, son of James Gandolfini, played a young Tony Soprano in The Many Saints of Newark. Also, while West Side Story actually has no fathers in it at all, Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner's musical adaptation of the American masterpiece has several instances of personal father influence floating around it, which we'll get to in a bit. But right now, though, to help us discuss the Oscars in a professionally glamorous way, <laughs> I want to bring to the stage Vanity Fair's chief critic, the host of Vanity Fair's Oscar podcast, Little Gold Men, and invigorator of the TV recap, Richard Lawson. Richard, Hello. how are you? Oh, did did ABC not tell you they're cutting my category? So I, I actually. <laughs> oh, they are. This won't this won't air on TV or or on a podcast rather. So it sorry. I, I hope you guys. I didn't know you guys didn't get that studio note. <laughs> we still get paid there, right? They're still sending the basket. Oh, of yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Okay, I mean, good. our show will remain just as long. We want to give you that warning. <laughs> <up front. laughs> yeah. 
And we couldn't afford an orchestra, so we can't play anyone off. But you do have Debbie Allen choreographing something, right? <laughs> oh, of and, course. I mean, I do that. You know, you know, I do that like two or yeah. three times a week in my apartment. Yeah. Um, last year when you were here, you told a story about your dad and the documentary that was made about him and how kind of there was an unusual story attached to that. How is your dad? My dad is good. He turned 88 about six weeks ago. And in late June, myself, my partner, my sister, and uh, my mom will be traveling to Sicily to watch him sing in a chorus. Uh, so we're taking our first family trip together in many years, let alone out of the country. So we're all very excited about it, especially because this was supposed to happen two years ago. And then um, I, I kicked over that jar that had that thing in it, and it seems to have spread uh, pretty far around the world. When you were in China, you, yeah, you I was at a wet over. market and I bought this jar. <laughs> it was all, anyway. I'm not going to. I can't actually legally can't go into that. I mean, how many times have we talked about this? Stay away from wet markets. You know what I mean? But the dry markets are, you know, so dry. So no, you're absolutely right there. They're dry. Well, speaking of this year's, last year's films, 2021, right? Was it a great year? We're, we're about to have our first real Oscar ceremony in a while. Yeah. I mean, I think it was a more robust year than the year before was, mm -hmm. um, just because more things were out. I think in certain cases, you know, I mean, the Oscars for the year 2020, that, you know, broadcast 20, early 2021, right. um, no one had seen those movies, really, it felt like. They had some time to catch up if they were on streaming, but it felt like a very cloistered little event that was just for a, a small coterie of devotees and the industry itself. Whereas this year, you know, I, people are catching up with West Side Story. Dune was a hit. I think there's only one movie, Licorice Pizza, that's currently not available to stream that's nominated for Best Picture. So that's nine other movies that people can watch at home or could have gone and seen in the theater. So hopefully this year will feel a bit more participatory. And yeah, I think it was a good slate of movies, although we're not fully back to, I think, the wealth that we had pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. But also like kind of like the actual ceremony itself. I mean, nothing could be as dirge-like and funereal as last year. I mean, like remember Halle Berry like did actually look dead. She had like, <laughs> she looked like she'd been made up to look like a corpse. And no jokes, yeah. everything was serious. Like just like, God, yeah. this is so exhausting. I appreciated that Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh, who who took, took the reins of that ceremony, tried to do something interesting and different. I don't think that his particular style works for something as lavish and corny as the oscars are supposed to be um right. I, I don't think the oscars can ever really be slick and cool and you know flinty i think that's a bad strategy to take which you know as we talk about the academy and abc just wrestling and trying to figure out how to get viewers back which they probably will never get back they keep trying to make the oscars appealing to people who probably would never care about the Oscars. And I wish they would just focus on the people who do care Ugh. and try to make them a good yeah. show for them. Thank you for saying that because they're removing eight categories, including really important ones to so many movie lovers like costume design and hair and editing. Mm. And they're having those folks get their award like an hour previous to the main celebrity awards, I guess. Which sort of cuts them out of a lot of the the red carpet and the fun and the speeches. The worst thing is that ABC, the, the network that, you know, that broadcasts the show and has for many years, yeah. 
they wanted to take 12 categories no. out of the broadcast and said if you don't do that we're going to we're going to break the contract and you can go find another broadcaster Whoa. so it got kind of serious and i guess the 8 was maybe a compromise but um i think the thing about it is there's a war between what ABC wants and what the Academy wants and what the film industry wants. And the film industry wants this to be their big party where people who don't normally get celebrated like sound editors right. can have a moment on stage with an award handed to them by a big celebrity. They get to go to the governor's ball. If you have an Oscar in hand, you get to go to the Vanity Fair party. <laughs> and those things will still happen. But you don't, you know, not having that TV moment and knowing that you're just kind of in this sad little pre-show. Uh, you know, the Tonys adopted this years ago because those ratings were, you know, through the floor sure. and it, it's still greeted as an insult every year when they do it. And so I just don't know why the Academy would follow suit out of just sheer fear of, of ABC. I have to, would have to imagine there was another better solution. Yeah. What do you actually get when you win an Oscar? What happens to you? Do you get a check? Is there like you get like a muffin basket and like, you know, there you're not set for live. I believe there is a gift basket. Um, I don't know if it's put together by, this is true. I don't know if it's put together by the Academy itself. I kind of don't think it is, but I've heard that like presenters and winners alike get like first class airline tickets around the world, like the crazy things. Yeah. I don't know if that's still the case, but in years past that has been true, but no, it's about the, it's, it's about being recognized by your industry, obviously for directors, writers, actors, and maybe a couple other categories. The, the win, you know, begets more work in theory, uh, though that's obviously doesn't always bear right. out. But it's really just about getting that recognition and to have your contribution to this very collaborative art be diminished like this, I think is a real insult. Because if we didn't have editors and sound mixers and hair and makeup people, there wouldn't be much of a movie. Seriously. And uh, there's been some, I don't know if it's if it's like an actual proposal or if it's just people you know fans on twitter wanting this to happen but they said you know okay if someone like an actor wins they should bring up someone on stage with them who didn't get to be oh, on tv I would love you know, that. and kind of stage a protest that way i also yeah. feel like those i love those moments because it's always some kind of dorky embarrassed dad that does the cliche go to bed kids or like some yeah. wizened woman with like giant hair and funky glasses <laughs> who's like a costume designer and takes an hour to get to stage and says something hilarious i love those yeah those real people yeah the normies it's a crucial reminder that that like not everyone who makes movies actually the vast majority of people who make movies mm -hmm. are not famous that's right or or even rich for that matter thank and, you um you know, at a time of Hollywood facing an incredible labor crisis and labor tensions across a variety of disciplines and crafts, that the Academy slash ABC would further run a you know afoul or exacerbate those tensions by doing this. I think it's been a really shaky two, couple years for the industry, and this was supposed to be the big grand like we're back thing, and now they're saying, oh, some of us are back. The rich and famous ones are back. The rest of you, you're still in the dark. Richard, have you ever, as the chief critic of Vanity Fair, I mean, obviously you get to go to the Vanity Fair party, right? I have been a couple times in the past. I won't be going this year because they <gasps> like to rotate out people, you know, because like there, are, I have I have coworkers and editors who have never been, and so it's their turn to go, which I totally respect. Yeah. Hopefully next year, or some year in the in the future. Do you have any blind items or tea? You have, you know, like uh, what's the craziest 
thing you've ever seen. <laughs> did, did you just sit in the corner and get drunk with Ellen Burstyn again? I mean, yeah. you don't have to name names. No, but, I mean, uh, sure. You know. uh, I Well, Lakeith Stanfield bummed a bunch of cigarettes off me, which was funny. If you're a smoker or if you want to just pretend to be one for that night, that yeah. is the best person to be because you'll be out in a smaller crowd of people. So smart. There's a sort of inherent social quality to that if you want there to be. Yeah. Um, my first year... There's a little lounge in the back, which is kind of like the dance floor with like a banquette, like kind of along the wall. Um, and and it, until the dancing really gets started at the beginning of the party, it's actually kind of the quieter part of the party. And so sometimes the older people gravitate toward that. And I was kind of just wandering by myself, glass of champagne in hand and looked around and I was like, oh, that's funny. There's uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. And oh, they're talking to anita hill and oh wait there's oprah and oh gosh there's steven spielberg talking to jeff bezos and there's barbara streisand standing by herself same as i'm standing by myself right and then i kind of turned into vapor and flew it away (laughs) that's incredible (laughs) and then Joni mitchell was once there hunched over in her wheelchair in a corner and just being greeted and people were sort of kissing her ring and it was really nice to see that she was getting that sort of reverence uh in her you know give it to her oh my gosh yeah it's that real behind the the scenes like campfire shit you know like where the wealthiest of the wealthy and the gilded of the gilded the vips get together at some event that we'll only get to see a glimpse of from richard or on an episode of succession (laughs) you know this really happens (laughs) you know you can be in a room with barbara streisand and anita hill in yeah. that context. Yeah. Uh, and I believe in she they were also in conversation, Anita and the and T- T- Tina and Amy were in conversation with Monica Lewinsky, who is a VF mm-hmm. contributor. So it was just a lot of history Amazing. sort of at a banquet. Um yeah, it's very surreal. It'll I hope it will never stop being surreal, you know, um, because I that then that means I've I've I don't know convince myself that I belong there, which I most it is plainly clear to me when I go to any event like that, VF or otherwise, that I am wallpaper, basically, like no one really notices me unless, again, I have cigarettes. (laughs) So that's hence why (laughs) I bring them. So but then can you go because it seemed like Barbara Streisand was alone. Like, doesn't that mean that you should go? (gasps) No, Matt, are you crazy? Matt, no. I value my life, Matthew. I am not going (laughs) to approach Barbara Streisand at a party. Or just go up and be, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't notice it was you till this very second. Oh. Now, who are you? I, the, yeah. I should just be like, now, what do you do? Are you? Yeah. Do you know anyone? <laughs> oh, you produced that animated short, right? That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Guys, let's start with the movies. Okay. Yes, we shall. King Richard is the one that stands out like right just because it's a father of the two greatest tennis players of all time right what are our thoughts on this like that's a father being a nice guy like he's a tough father but he's still like kind of sensitive and very caring and his daughters are yeah as coach they're very well adjusted according to the film i don't know i i was surprised let's ask richard lawson about king Yeah, Richard, richard what did you think of king richard I liked it. I mean, I I saw it months ago at the Telluride Film Festival where it premiered. And, you know, as expected, the the reaction was pretty rapturous. I think it wasn't quite so when it came out in a couple months later. Um, But, you know, it's clearly done well enough at the Oscars for whatever that's worth. I think Will Smith will win. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's an interesting case, that movie, because I have read some really interesting criticism from black critics like Soraya McDonald at The Undefeated, who's a great 
one-time Pulitzer finalist critic that people should read. She wrote a really kind of elegant takedown of that movie and about particularly its depiction of Richard Williams. Um, you know, Will Smith didn't get the voice right. It felt a little bit too, too uncomfortably close to his work in the notorious Legend of Bagger Vance. And also that Richard Williams himself was a much more complicated figure in the negative uh, and positive, I guess, than is depicted in the film. And I hear those criticisms. I think uh, that it's good to have that kind of dialogue around a, a biopic like this. I think it is in some ways instructive, though, that the Williams sisters, Serena and Venus, are producers on the film yeah. and have been mm -hmm. very actively on the campaign for it, um, as Will Smith has pulled back on the campaign trail, largely due to, I think, a kind of botched uh, beginning of that campaign last fall when he gave some very strange interviews. Um, oh, yeah. So Remind I, us about yeah. those strange interviews. I don't remember every particular of the little press cycle he did when the movie was coming out, but I th what it was kind of in conjunction with was, was that he had a memoir come out. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were some passages in that memoir, one in particular that people found and highlighted. And, and I think did take a little out of context where basically he said like in his heyday of Fresh Prince into Independence Day when he was, uh, you know, a man about town, he was like vomiting after he had every time after he had sex. And like people were like, what is going on here? Why are you telling why is this anecdote oh, in right. a press thing about King Richard? And he they weren't they were it. kind of separate things. He took it to the red table when he should have kept it on. You know, uh, right. right? right. His okay. wife was an also an executive producer. Right, yeah, wasn't yeah, she? Yeah. yeah. So she's. Yeah. Yep. That's the story to tell. That's the one to go out there with. Okay, yeah. But... So he's a weird guy, but I think I think he's good in the film. I don't know. I, I mean, maybe s separate of who the real person was. If I'm imagining this person on screen is just a character, I, I found it convincing and, and and pretty charismatic. I think Smith is someone who is like one of the last big movie stars. So it would be a really mm -hmm. big deal for him to finally win an Oscar. I think 21 years after his first nomination for Ali. Right. That was 21 years ago. God, wow. yeah, was he was young. He felt like the biggest star in the world for Ali, you know? Was he nominated for Six Degrees of Separation, by the way? I remember that being his first Oscar buzz. That was Yeah, he was not. Stalker Channing was. Okay. Um, but he was not. But and he I think his kind of ran away from that role. I mean, Denzel oh, Washington sure. told him not to take it and, you know, because it was a gay part and um that 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 his history with that movie is complicated. Interestingly enough about that movie's nominations too is that was one of the many many instances in which Donald Sutherland could have been nominated but has never once in his career mm -hmm. been nominated for an Oscar. Get out. Yep, he won an honorary one in 2017, but he never got a he's not not received a competitive acting nomination ever. Wow. Wow. That is shocking. It's sort of like Tom Cruise has only received one, right? Hasn't he? Mm. No, he has a couple because he got Magnolia, member for supporting actor, and I That's think Born, right. and Jerry Maguire, Born on the I think he has three. Born yeah. on the floor. Okay. Yeah. But he's never won ever. Right. So Are you are you thinking yeah. of me when you say that? <laughs> that we, I know I get confused with Tom Cruise. I've I have yeah. not been nominated. Yeah. <laughs> I th oh that's sorry you're absolutely right I was thinking of you I had posters of you on my wall as a 16 year old that's right. absolutely right. what happened but in any case I also I just love Will Smith I really like his work most of the time I think when he does great work it's just so lovely including when he was on Fresh Prince of Bel-Air remember that scene where he's like why didn't oh my, my father love me oh, yeah. it's like just the classic you know, scene from that show yeah, except yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I really liked King Richard and I thought he was incredible. And I thought the speech that he gives to Venus about 
his father's fear watching his father run away when faced with um, essentially a group of men who white men who had attacked him as a teenager his dad was watching it and ran away to save himself and talking about always wanting to protect her I thought was really moving and Will Smith did a great job um I'm curious about what do you guys know about the controversy around Richard Williams like I I know that there's some I've seen some discussion about that he had a lot of kids that he wasn't around for his other children what else like has come out since the movie came out I think it has to do with this, the scene, you know, Anjanu Ellis, who's nominated for uh, supporting actress who played Oracine, the girl's mom, she brings it up in in the scene that I think got her the nomination, which is this her big dramatic mm-hmm. scene where she calls him out and she's like, "What about the other kids? Like I've stood by you while you kind of ignored them, and you know all mm-hmm. that stuff." So they did try to acknowledge that for all of the attention and care that Richard Williams has put into Venus and Serena and, and, you know, and their, their immediate siblings, there were a lot of other kids that he did not. Um, Beyond that, um, I think there are some murky questions just about how exacting he was in his parenting. You know, we see a, you know, because I think the thing about it, and I tried to get into this when I wrote about it, the movie was like, it's great that it worked this time. But what does that intensity result in when it doesn't work, when these girls don't become the best tennis players in the world? Right. You know, and I think that the movie doesn't quite, it's, it, it, there's a, the movie veers a little bit, it's too close to a sort of bootstraps, hard work will win out in the day without really acknowledging that this is a rarity Mm. for many many families are particularly and not just that but they they i mean yes that absolutely and also it just sort of struck me as odd that firstly while that scene where she delivers the monologue calling him out i was like i found that really abrupt i think she did a magnificent job with that scene it was spectacularly done but i'm like oh whoa major exposition just quickly Mm -hmm. jammed in there also along those exact lines richard like Venus and Serena, in fact, the entire family seemed completely within a bubble, like as young black women who are going to school. No, you know, like what about those challenges? What about the pressures of like socially fitting in? They just seem to be best friends, no conflict. Everything's fine. We just work hard. They didn't even, it was just like completely mythologizing these girls as like deeply functional, like, like highly talented people that just didn't fuck up ever right which i found really odd yeah and i think it reflects the demands that are put on um a lot of black athletes you know to sort of be model minorities and to just like that like stick to your lane play your sport you know and kind of keep your head down don't protest certainly and venus and serena are both political beings they have their public stances it's it, it was nice watching serena you know, as she got more famous and I think more secure in her fame and certainly her wealth, yeah. you know, explore fashion and art and pursue all these things that she, uh, at least in this movie's version of things, and I think also history's version of things, like just didn't get to, she had such blinders on that were put there by her parents um, that I think there are so many demands placed on people like Venus and Serena that the movie doesn't quite properly contextualize i guess um in the broader scheme of things yeah indeed but as matt and i were discussing earlier this week after we both saw coda which we'll move into now it has 
a refreshing structure mm -hmm. and format and it's what you see is kind of what you get and it was just a refreshing story let's talk about that movie richard and talk about troy katsur who i believe is a front runner for best supporting actor yeah i, I kind of think he's gonna win yeah he was lovely at the sag awards when he won for that and and then coda won you know the ensemble prize which is their version of best picture essentially yeah, Coda is a wild story. You know, it's an adaptation of a French film. It premiered at the all virtual Sundance in 2020 when or 2021, rather, um, when everyone was like, what will this be? You know, Sundance is known for those big Little Miss Sunshine breakouts that everyone's right. freaking out about in the mountains and writing missives down to the to sea level about how this amazing new thing they've just seen. And um, we didn't think that was going to happen when everyone was at home and the, you know, the, the film selection was smaller, but then came along Coda from Sean Heater, who is a, a, a really good indie director, again, adapting from the French film. And, uh, you know, it, it sold to Apple for $25 million, which is the highest yeah. sale ever at Sundance by a kind of a wide margin, I think. And then it came out in the summer and I wasn't really sure that people were watching it because I don't really know who has Apple TV Plus. Right. Um, but it seems to have found its audience. And, you know, it's a very touching story about uh, the hearing child of a deaf family trying to figure out her allegiances to home versus her very natural at her, you know, she's about to graduate from high school at that age, curiosity about the world and trying to assert her own autonomy over her life. Those are tensions a lot of people can relate to. And then you have this added benefit that it's one of the very, very, very rare pieces of film or TV that centers deaf characters. And it's a story about deafness, but it's also just a story about a family, which I think um, is a crucial difference. Yeah. yeah. I really felt like, Aaron, you're absolutely right when you say that. Like the formula of it I was taken through this and by the end, I completely understood the dynamics of their family. Mm -hmm. I was completely siding with it. I totally understood an experience I'd never had before. I mean, this, it was all the things that were on the nose, like the songs she sang and everything. Like, I didn't mind any of it. I I felt really moved by it. It was a, it was a lovely experience. But what else has Troy um, Katsur done? Yes, because he is the first deaf actor to be nominated um, for mm -hmm. an Academy Award. Not, I'm sorry, male actor, because Marley Matlin clearly won for Children of a Lesser God, I believe. Who plays his wife yeah. in yeah. the movie. Right, who plays yeah, his wife. Yeah. Do we know what else he's done? He did a lot of theater. Um, I think he did a lot with Deaf West, which is a deaf theater company based, I believe, in L.A., um, people might know them. For, they did a production of Spring Awakening um, a number of, you know, maybe five years ago that transferred to Broadway and it was a big, I think, box office and critical hit. Um, they so, did that. The Broadway production of that was what that that came from his the theater company that he works with. I, I believe he's done productions with Deaf West. I don't think he's involved in the like organization of it, but um, oh, right, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it is a major mecca for deaf actors and. Yeah, so a theater of late, partly because of the success of Spring Awakening, has been incorporating deaf actors more into productions. I'm thinking of The King Lear with uh, Glenda Jackson a few years ago, had a mm -hmm. prominent uh, role filled by the deaf actor, and 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 film has been a little slower to catch up. Sound of uh, Metal, Sound which was nominated metal. for awards last year. Oh yeah, of course. That was that was good, inclusive to some extent, but um, the supporting actor who was nominated for that. Um, is not actually deaf. He is a coda, a child of deaf adults. And 
there was some kind of minor minor controversy about that. And so that makes Kotzer, yes, the first um, male actor to be nominated who's deaf. That's exciting. And you think he's going to win? That's my hunch. I think that Cody Smith-McPhee could also win for Power of the Dog just because he's won pretty much every Precursor Critics Award. But I I don't know. I think that the Academy on occasion does like to go for that kind of history-making, press, you know, soul-stirring kind of moment. And while Cody Smith-McPhee is great in Power of the Dog, I think... Kotzer, who's been so lovely on, you know, his post-nomination press tour and all that. I think he's the sentimental favorite, but it's also a great performance. I don't yeah. mean to diminish it by saying it's the sentimental choice. It is. It's so, I yeah. mean, not not to give spoilers, but the girl in the movie, the daughter, the premise is that she is a great singer. And so, and, and she has yeah. a brother who's also deaf. And so her family can literally cannot, literally cannot hear her. Um, which is something, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the classic teen not understood by her family, except in this case, it's literal. Um, right. And but there's a that scene where he puts his hand on her chest when she sings is so sweet. Oh, her throat. oh God. Her throat. I mean, it was yeah. really My God. incredible. But while we're talking about Power of the Dog, why don't we talk about Power of the Dog? I just love Jane Campion. She spoke at my graduation. <laughs> And I just love every time I see a or, film. Or what you told her was your graduation. Wow, tell us. Yeah, that was what I, what That's I. A tried. Big deal. I had painted one of my signs above a door, very you know, recklessly, and I was like, "Graduation." And the R was backwards. It was like yeah, and it was a cage on the back of a truck, and I had drove away with like smoke behind it that's why she disappeared for 25 years (laughs) around the millennium oh my god now we know no but anyway what i love about her is that it's so clear to me and i don't know why but that she that her films are directed by a woman they're just something about them i'm sure this could be dissected in some way but I just particularly like Top of the Lake just hammered it for me. I'm like, this was clearly directed by a woman. But the way that she approaches suppressed human emotion is, I, I don't know what it is, but there's something about her films that make me re- know that she is a woman, even if I didn't know it was Jane Campion. But what I also love about this film was the way that it kind of champions a queer femme kid. And he's also maybe a psychopath at the same time. So it's like you're not treating this like femme kid as delicate. Like, no, not at all. Nobody comes right. out of this completely unscathed and pure, which I, I really liked. Let's set up the story of, of the most nominated 12 film nominations, on our list. yeah. Such a big deal for Jane Campion. First of all, she's centering a male actor for the first time in one of her films. Is that true, Richard? Or, or like yeah, pretty a, much. Um, a story, it's about cowboys. Right, and it's set in mm-hmm. the American West or Montana. Right, it's, it's two brothers. They've inherited a ranch, both very different, right. but work together as brothers. And also, a woman whose husband has died, who runs like a restaurant kind of nearby, and her son, who is this very femme, introspective, sensitive, pretty kind of boy. Well, he's like a teenager. He's in college. Yeah, he's like in college. He goes to study medicine. The woman marries one of the brothers and they all, everybody then lives on the ranch and the characters clash for various reasons. There's a lot of kind of um, emotional, psychological torture that goes on. The main character, Benedict Cumberbatch's character's name is Phil. Yeah, um, Phil. Is this very alpha male cowboy who leads a pack of cowboys that work for him and is also harboring quite a lot of repressed gay desire particularly for 
a former love by the name of what was his name bronco henry. bronco henry his mentor yeah. and when right? the, this queer kid shows up with the mother he just is triggered and just sends everyone to attack this kid but the cat the kid does not take it lying down and he in his own way calculates to take control of the situation uh, the relationship yeah. which he does um it's just such a thoughtful you just you come out of it and you're like it's almost like unclear what happened to a certain extent did you guys feel like you you got it straight away i had to watch it twice there was such a sense of foreboding um, that I thought it was going to be like, okay, there's going to be some kind of like rape. A hundred percent. Or mm-hmm. like sexual yeah. drama. It it debuted on Netflix. And so I remember, you know, my 84 year old stepdad, I was like, what did you think he saw at first? And he's like, well, it was no Brokeback Mountain. So I went in assuming it was like a creepy, you know, that it would be something else. But then it turns into this meditation on masculinity in particular and the cruelty associated with it. But also this eroticized cowboy ethos, like look, mm-hmm. right? It was, it was, ve- I was pleasantly surprised by Benedict Cumberbatch's cowboy. Like I did not think that he would be able to pull that off. Richard, you thought that he didn't carry the accent consistently. Is that right? What do you mean? There's nothing wrong with his American accent. <laughs> it is a totally normal American accent. Um, no, but I, I, I think the accent's a little wonky. But I think it works for the for the role and for the movie because Phil is putting on such a performance. Right. You know yes, that yes. that he is this Yale educated classic student who's you know th- rich parents own this ranch, and so he goes out there and is like, well, I'm going to be a rootin' tootin' cowboy, and well, not rootin' tootin', he's more taciturn, but like. You know, he won't bathe out of some stupid idea that that's not what cowboys do. I mean, it, 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 he's a pathetic character, and you you, yeah. you do feel for him, despite his um his cruelty at times. Um, and and I don't know. So the accent kind of contributes to that alienating quality of of like something about this guy is just not adding up. Um, he does not seem to be what he's posing as. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the simmering rage in him is also something I never uh, associated with that actor. Yeah, and full frontal nudity, of course. Oh, true. The character is possessive over his brother, Jesse Plemons, who gets married to Kirsten Dunst, who I thought was incredible in the movie. She's such a good actress, also nominated. There's a lot of tension and jealousy between her character and Benedict Cumberbatch's character. But skip ahead if you're listening and you don't want any spoilers. Skip ahead 30 seconds. Skip ahead 30 seconds. Why did Bronco Henry write his name on his gay porn? Thank you. That was my number one <laughs> yeah. question. Okay. I think that is the one misstep of that yeah. movie, honestly. Yeah, right. That, 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 that's the one moment where I'm like, oh, I'm out of it. Like everything of Elps, uh, the, the movie is so immersive. We like, get it. We, we, can, we can put it together. Those are, you know old bhs but without him i mean why why would anyone living a secret of life scrawl that on on a muscle magazine you know the only thing missing was like mom don't look in this box written on the other (laughs) right gay stuff within he should have written this doesn't belong to bronco (laughs) it doesn't underline this is anyone's magazine but (laughs) um but i guess we uh, we have to talk about sam elliott because he's kind of like 
bringing this up in terms of like Sam Elliott was deeply triggered, much like Phil in the LOL. movie. Yeah. So, Erin, you want to take us through? Let me take us through this scandal. Earlier this week or last week, Sam Elliott went on uh, Mark Marin's podcast and he, you know, Mark Marin asked Sam Elliott, who's currently the star of the Western series 1883, you know, was nominated for a Star is Born. He's that synonymous with Texas actor in his 70s with the big white beard. Lovely actor usually, but he really got pissed about Campion and the power of the dog. Uh, he suggested that a New Zealand-born filmmaker who recently became the first woman with two career best director nominations at the Oscars wasn't qualified to tell a story about the American West. Quote, she's a brilliant director. I love her previous work, but what the fuck does this woman from down there, New Zealand, know about the American West? And why the fuck did she shoot this movie in New Zealand? I have an answer <laughs> and called it Montana and say, this is the way it was. That rubbed me the wrong way, pal. <laughs> Elliot told Marin further slamming what he felt were inaccuracies about cowboys, whom he said Campion portrayed as if they were Chippendales dancers. Where are we in this world today? Quote, it's not the biggest issue at hand, but for me, it was the only issue because there was so much of it. I mean, Cumberbatch never got out of his fucking chaps. He had two pairs of chaps, a woolly pair and a leather pair. Every time he'd walk in from somewhere, he never was on a horse, maybe once. He'd walk into the fucking house, storm up the fucking stairs, go lay on his bed in his chaps and play his banjo. It was like, what the fuck? Where's the Western in this Western? So Benedict Cumberbatch um, responded a few days later he didn't name Sam Elliott, but he clearly heard about the scandal or the, the quote and responded by also clarifying that um, Campion did send him to like cowboy school um, in Montana. Like he did spend a lot of time in Montana training and learning from real American cowboys and women. And she shot it in New Zealand because that's where she lives. That's, and they got tax breaks to do it there. They got tax breaks. That's why they cast Cody Smith-McPhee, because they have to cast a certain amount of actors from Australia or New Zealand. Absolutely. She, Sam Elliott knows that. He knows he, that they're these He film knows things. that. You so know. Benedict Cumberbatch says, quote, the denial that anybody could have anything other than a heteronormative experience because of what they do for a living or where they're born, there's also a massive intolerance in the world at large towards homosexuality still, towards an acceptance of the other, of any kind of difference, and no more so than in this prism of conformity in the sense of what is expected of a man in the Western archetype mold of masculinity. Of Campion's attempt to deconstruct masculine stereotypes through his character, Cumberbatch added, these people still exist in our world. There's aggression and anger and frustration and an inability to control or know who you are in that moment that causes damage to the, that person. And as we know, damage to others around them. He's talking about the repression of his character. I think there's no harm in looking at a character to try to get to the root cause of that. Um, 
Campion says, when asked if she ever worried about overdoing it, um, she asserted that she encouraged the homosexual impulses and gear, quote, represented in the movie, and that she meant the film to be fetishized. Campion said, too much leather and ropes and chaps. I encouraged it. I just think it's beneath her to even have to say any of this. So do I. Like, I just, it's so stupid. I immediately, as soon as Sam Elliott compared the Cowboys to Chippendales dancers, we know exactly what his statement is about. Like, this is standard. Anyone would watch this movie and be like, I got rain, it's raining men breakaway pants from the swimming hole scenes is really strange to me. Well, he owns the category of cowboy. Fuck off, Sam Elliott. Fuck off. Richard, what are your thoughts? The thing about it is that in the Marin interview, he seems to have been most angry about a pull quote from a review that he saw in an ad in the LA Times calling it like an evisceration of the American myth, which is like, okay, Mm. if you take issue with the phrasing in a quote, like it just feels very like Sam Elliott like reading one tweet and being like, God damn it. You know, like it, it's so, I know he watched right. the film, but like, I, you know, the, the other points about, and he keeps hitting that word woman really hard. If you listen to yeah. the audio about the, the New Zealand thing, it's like, well, fucking take it up with Sergio Leone who shot Westerns in Italy. That like that production quibble, um, I, I think is, is being used, you know, to obfuscate what the real issue, which was like, you know, I don't want to see these gay cowboys. And, you know, Ernest Borgnine said a similar thing when Brokeback Mountain was out. He said, like, you know, John Wayne would be rolling over in his grave. I think that sentiment in 2005 is why Crash beat Brokeback Mountain for Best Picture. I don't know if that enough of that sentiment exists in the Academy, largely because a good deal of it has died off to block Power of the Dog. I mean, it obviously did very well in nominations. Um, but it's a it's a disappointment because Sam Elliott always seemed like gruff but yeah, sensitive or totally. interesting, sensitive. and this just reduced his ability to like pr- watch the output of the industry that he has been a part of for decades. Like yeah. I'm just like, oh, that's how you that's how ignorantly you read movies or how willfully mm-hmm. you misread them. Like I also think, in closing, just because a movie is set on a ranch in the American West does not make it a western. Mm-hmm. That, that is a setting it is not a genre i don't think there is any intention for this to be a true western there are no gunfights there's not a sheriff that comes into town it is a movie set in a bleak place in a bleak time and that's yes. about it that ha- you know yes fair yes. enough very good point richard dune let's just skip to dune <laughs> yes. let's go to another planet let's skip to dune, uh, dune. <laughs> you know that sam elliott plays the sandworms in the in, the, in that he does yeah. you're absolutely right <laughs> yeah <laughs> He j- it's just his they face. They were a little, the it. sandworms were very gay to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I actually don't have a history with June, the book, the other movie with Sting. I don't have, like, but I watched this. I thought it was quite beautiful. I loved the eyes. I think uh, Zendaya is incredible in general. I don't know. I'm not adding anything to this, but do you guys talk about it? I don't think any um, of us have seen it. I just don't have a history with the other film or the book. And so... I don't either. I mean, I and I think a okay. lot of people don't. I, I thought that movie was going to be... I saw it and I was like, it's pretty to look at. I didn't feel anything for the story. Same. Okay. I, I, I was really put off that at the beginning of this two hour and 45 minute movie, it <gasps> says part one. And you're like, no, motherfucker, give me a full story. And then you can decide to have a sequel. It's different when it's Lord of the Rings and they filmed them all at once. And so you knew there were going to be three films coming out. In this case, it was a gamble. I mean, people could have been really dissatisfied. It seems like it is going to get a sequel. It I just, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah it, it is going to get a sequel. I just, I, I, it feels like 
I, I know that Frank Herbert wrote the novel well before Star Wars, well before a lot of stuff that was heavily influenced by it. But this kind of chosen son of a royal family, blah, blah, blah. I just felt like he didn't, the, the film doesn't do anything to try to like comment on that or update it at all. It just plays it very straight. I know that this kid played by Timothy Chalamet as the book series goes on is not actually the messianic figure that he seems kind of designed to be in this first movie. But like, I don't know. It felt like a lot of pomp and flash with a kind of surprisingly little substance to it, which I think unfortunately is a hallmark of Denis Villeneuve's films minus a couple like arrival. And, and uh, I think if you're describing Timothy Chalamet's character in that way, I'm reminded of his performance in the King, which was like mm. largely the same kind of construct. And I think he did an extremely like impressive job in that. Like there was this one scene where he's marching to motivate the troops to go into battle. And I'm like, Jesus, this is a Chalamet I've never seen. It's like reaching into the absolute pit of his soul and re this uh, raw brutality mm. comes out of him. Like that, he did a good job with that character then. I got, yeah, I got sort of like they were attempting this kind of budding leadership characteristic that they just didn't get in Dune. Yeah, compared to the King, this feels yeah, like a regression. Feels like in a, a way, regression because in the King, he like you see him. I mean, it's literally you know, it's it's the mm -hmm. it's the Henry plays kind of reimagined by Joel Edgerton, who co-wrote the script um, to the King. But mm -hmm. um, you know, he goes from boy to man in a kind of very you know classic way. Uh, and this is attempting at least part one to do that, but it just feels like, but no, he yeah. already got there. Like he's in his mid twenties now. Like I think he doesn't need to play the special son of special parents, you know, uh, yeah. all the time. The king of twinks. <laughs> it's hard to kill off that thing. He can't. He has to like Miley Cyrus himself, you know. Yeah, he has to. Yeah. Well, I'm also scared for the th what he could do. What Ezra Miller did, which is like bulk up, mm -hmm. and that, I think that's going to look very weird if that happens. That's what they all yeah. do. Yeah, or he can't bulk up now. Maybe he'll do like a, a Charlize Theron monster moment. Yes. He'll bulk up and have fake teeth. Where she's like desperately afraid her totally. beauty will destroy her. That's what she's afraid of. <laughs> Charlize Theron is not afraid of anything that, but that her beauty may destroy her. So she constantly goes and does I can this. really relate to that myself. <laughs> her uglification. <laughs> That's why she made that uh, documentary, Snow White and the Huntsman. <laughs> All about exactly. her towering vanity. Towering <laughs> vanity. She just looked at the end and she went, oh, finally this message is out of me. But, you know. <laughs> well, Oscar Isaac, the actor who has just been very busy the last couple of years, he also played another prominent dad this year or last year, um, Gomez Adams in The Adams Family 2. And he manages to make a parallel between those two roles the one in Dune, and the one in The Addams Family, too. So I thought I'd read this quote to fatherly.com. Those particular characters are trying to do the best they can with difficult situations. With Duke Leto, he's in a tough spot, and he knows he might be going down. The best he can hope for is, a good, is to set a good example of what a real noble leader is and to pass that on to his son. And in similar ways, Gomez can find that there is a disconnect with his daughter and in a much more desperate way is trying to get her closer. And part of his journey is learning to trust her a bit more. What's more interesting to me is how a father struggles to do the right thing and sometimes fails at it, but learns through that. So 
I think we're finding that actors are being really thoughtful about these roles. And I, I do think it is funny that, like, leave it to a Juilliard actor to intellectualize everything. <laughs> yeah. Like, ev every exactly. role. Well, in this Burger King commercial, I really was the, the soul of the character, you know. Yes. I'm the sure he's great. In Gomez it. Adams but... on this Cheetos commercial, I really just, yeah. like, tapped into my Wagnerian past. <laughs> As I learned as part of Class 46 at Lincoln School Center. <laughs> let's, you guys talk about the animated contenders, but let's start with Flea, right? Yes. That is nominated for three major Oscars, foreign feature, best documentary feature, and best animated feature. Has that ever happened before, Richard? Do you know? Out of Africa. That was, the, that was the last one that did that. You did a great job with that, um, by the way, making sure that that oh, got nominated. Thank you. thank you. I taught Meryl her accent. Yeah. I made it up. I just was like, you made up from her. somewhere. It's got to sound like this. You did. You, you were brought in as an accent coach. That's that's so great. It happened. I think it, there was a dim, dim chance it could get four was Best Picture. It didn't. Um, but uh, I think that was one of the movies of the year, Flea. I, I think it's a beautiful uh piece of filmmaking it's a fascinating story about this kid fleeing afghanistan with his family um with the arrival of taliban in the early 2000s um um horrific relevance to the situation in afghanistan today uh it's a queer story it's a refugee story it's a war story and there is you know there is this father figure who sort of looms over everything because but he never you never meet him really in this the story because he has been i think either they know he was killed or at least disappeared um but his presence kind of hovers over and then other men in his family kind of gently take sort of of those duties as the as the story that he's narrating uh goes on there is a particularly moving scene where spoiler alert um the main character comes out to the I, you know what? I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember if it was his father in a flashback. It seems like it wasn't, but to his family, it's older brother, right? And the whole family is like in the kitchen, just like kind of going, "What? What the hell's going on?" And then his older brother just grabs him, takes him away, and they arrive at what looks like kind of a nightclub. And you go to this place where you think, "Oh God, he's mm. taking his brother to this whorehouse." Um. And mm. in fact, it's a gay club and he's facilitating his his brother's first sort of finding of a queer community. I think the most striking thing about that film for me anyway is that the animation for our, the lead character and his boyfriend makes them both look really hot. <laughs> yeah. And so I was just really kind of curious about that. They're, you yeah. can't find them online because they use pseudonyms. So that, that was disappointing. That That's the one mark of the movie is that you can't Instagram these people <laughs> when, you, when you're done watching it. Interesting a for a documentary shame. too. Is it because th they're in danger? Joking aside, yes, it is for the, the narrator's safety. Yeah. Yeah. But also the way the trauma of this experience plays out in their relationship and how it, and it plays out in a very real way that I think is kind of relatable to most people in some way or another. Um, yeah, it's like a beautiful, it's a beautiful film. Do you think that's going to win it? Which oh, category right. or a, which well, categories? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think that Drive My Car will win an uh, international feature. I think okay. Encanto will win an animated. And I think there's a chance that Summer of Soul could beat Flea in documentary. I hope that that doesn't happen. I think that that's Flea's best chance is that category. But yeah, I, I, it could go 0 for 3, which would be a disappointment. Interesting. Well, 
speaking of okay wait hang on so the the other huge film this is auxiliary father stories connected to it and i was shocked at how good this movie was west side story i had anticipated spielberg just you know grandiosely decided i will place my mark upon this american masterpiece and then he would just flatten it and he didn't tony kushner did a great job adapting this script it was just I thought it was super successful, but there were no fathers in it. And I only really thought about that in the, when I watched this one. I'm like, there are no fathers in this at all. But Spielberg did actually dedicate the film to his father, who died at 104, sorry, 103, before the film was finished. Wow. And he had watched some of, well, there's a quote. I'll, I'll, I'll read what Spielberg said. Um, I was so sad that he couldn't see it that I dedicated the film to him. My dad loves West Side Story. He's seen a number of productions of it. He was 103 and a half when he passed, and I hadn't finished the film yet. But he was kind of on set sometimes because he'd be in LA and we'd be in New York shooting, and he'd be on the iPad on FaceTime, and he'd be able to watch the setups and some and watch some performances. It's it was weird. I'll just finish the film because it's so like it's such a deeply sad, like jarring ending. The screen goes black and then just like for dad comes up as the text that you see before the credits. I kind of wasn't expecting that. The other father story that I found that was kind of interesting um, with relation to West Side Story was Mike Faced, the actor who played the character Riff, who is one of the sort of main characters in the Jets, mm -hmm. was interviewed in the New York Times. He was talking about how he kind of took the lead in creating a sense of bonding between all of the actors who were in the Jets so they could that would be convincing on stage. And they did a bunch of uh, activities like going upstate or drinking at a bar or whatever. But um, one of the things that happened was, I'll, I'll read what he said. Um, there was a set in Sunset Park in Brooklyn um, over the East River. One of the Jets, Harrison Cole, who's in um, many of the numbers, his father had recently passed away. We'd been rehearsing that... Um, a particular number for four or five months and then when we finally finished on the last day of shooting harrison brought his dad's ashes and we went to the east river we actually sang the jet song and harrison said a little something and thanked his dad and then he released his dad's ashes into the east river so like that was kind of one of the key things that bonded wow. this cast together as they were kind of bringing it all together and I thought it was a really sweet story. I think Mike Face is astonishing as Riff too. He has this like mid-century voice. I don't know if it's his actual voice or if it's yeah. he's put it on either way. It's just something that really works about it. Richard, you described it as shockingly good to me. I thought that was like the right way of describing it. it it's been a funny thing with that movie right. um, where people are like, Oh, right. Steven Spielberg is a really good director. <laughs> you know, I, I think a lot of people hadn't forgotten it, but I think people just got used to him and sort of took him for granted and forgot that he, because he's so populist and can be so square, I think he doesn't get enough credit for the darkness that has been in a lot of his films for about 30 years now since Schindler's List. I, I think he can be a kind of flinty, edgy director. You think about Munich, for example. Um, yeah. But it is shockingly good because, you know, the, the 1961 version is has its faults. You know, Natalie Wood's not singing, nor is she Latina. And uh, right. the lead, the guy who plays Tony is kind of not that present, I don't think. But but there's so many beautiful things in that original movie that you think, well, why bother trying to update it? But I think what 
Spielberg and I think really crucially Tony Kushner, who did the adaptation, uh, mm -hmm. figure out is how to keep it grounded in that sense of time and a little bit in that sense of nostalgia for that time, while also updating it to to better fit the sort of mores in terms of what we're willing to watch and, and kind of grapple with on screen of today. And it, the balance is so beautifully struck in a way that I, I guess I should have expected, but didn't. Like, that's the thing about this musical is that it really is not something, it's not Shakespeare. You, I mean, it's sort of, it's Shakespeare adjacent, but it's not like a thing, a sort of universal text that you then kind of can play around with that much. The, the Broadway version of it that was on just before the pandemic hit was just just terrible like so earnest and wrong it just was tone deaf because they had everyone with cell phone cameras and like they were like filming sergeant krupke and it was just like no this is wrong <laughs> you've got it all wrong <laughs> that was dutch madman evo van hove's production right <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. yeah he 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 he, he kind of over over egged that one you know and spielberg figured out how I to know. do it modernly but yeah. But was this the financial disappointment of the year? Like it I thought it was going to be just the biggest holiday movie ever and it shocked everyone by not hitting any sort of bar financially I, I, or I, I, I sort of have a theory about that. You're right. Yes, it it really performed poorly at the box office um in a way that would that took caught me off guard. But I think the thing about that is is why it caught me caught me off guard. And the why mm -hmm. is that I know West Side Story intimately. My father brought it, brought that record home when I was a kid, and I would listen to that thing over and over and over and over again. I've known West Side Story for, you know, um, almost, you know, probably 30 years at this point. Um, yeah. And a lot of people who I talk to, I'm in a little bubble of theater fans and maybe fans of the of the original film. And we see, we see the certain iconography of West Side Story, the fire escape, the school dance. We see, we hear the the opening mm -hmm. whistle or, you know, something like that. And we know exactly what to, to expect. But I think a lot more people don't know West Side Story. You know, it's a, it's a, mm -hmm. what, 68 year old yeah. musical. And, <laughs> the, and yet the marketing for it, for, for the film, for the new film was just like, little flashes and they were like you know what it is West Side right. Story go see it mm. and people were like I yeah, don't sure. know what that yeah. is <laughs> and now that it's on Disney Plus all of these people who are not having to risk the theater spend the extra money are watching it and mm. loving okay. it so I, I'm it's having it's having its kind of not second life but kind of its first life on Disney Plus which is great I just think that movie was really badly marketed yeah well and also didn't it come out right before or when Omicron like hit you know, right around so there. I don't think there were a lot of people yeah. going to theaters and it was slow to come Good to point. streaming platforms. Like, I feel like every other movie that came out this year that had a lot of buzz around it, it was like simultaneously was released online in some way, which this wasn't right at first, at least. Um, uh, no, it, it waited because the studios are going to have to start doing that again if they actually want to make money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They were trying to push the. You need to see it in the big on the big screen experience, which I understand for sure. Yeah. Movie theaters are hard though. Yeah. I mean, I think pretty sure that's how I got Omicron COVID from seeing House Ugh. of Gucci. Can you believe it, Richard? <laughs> of all the movies to get infected at House of <laughs> Gucci, where Adam Driver's accent is literally like a this. Uh, it's like is somebody giving this much effort. Uh. Like Super Mario Bros. <laughs> oh. you, you got the Italian strain. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the Italiano, the Hospitaliano strain. So that's a spicy meatball. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Will that horrifying movie win any Oscars? No, is it nominated? House of Gucci? It, wasn't it for hair or makeup? It's only nominated for one hair and makeup. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hair. Okay. yeah. Uh, I don't think it'll win there. <laughs> can we talk about how, speaking of wigs and bad accents, can we talk about being the Ricardos? Why don't we? What the hell? I turned it off. 20 minutes in, I turned it off. I'm shocked that she's yeah. nominated. I thought she was actually very good considering, but what a piece of shit. Richard, what did you think? I don't know. I thought it was okay. I, I sort of, it, it didn't really, actually, Matthew and I saw that together um, at an, uh, an event that Amazon threw. There was a party afterward and everything, and they really was, were doing it up. And there was a lot of pomp and circumstance, and then the actual movie played, and it felt kind of like yeah. one of those movies you'd see on Saturday night on HBO, and someone would win an Emmy for it or a Golden Globe for it, you know? Yeah. That said, I was convinced for a while that Nicole Kidman would, would win Best Actress because she's playing a real person who is in show business. She's doing a voice. She changed the way she looks. You know, th that's usually the formula uh, for, for actors to win things like the Oscars. Um, I don't know that she will now. But yeah, that movie is interesting because it seemed like such Academy catnip. Uh, and outside of the the nominated actors, the writing branch rejected it. The directing branch direct rejected it. Yeah. Like it really like um, didn't register uh, or, or, you know, it didn't strike the fancy of a lot of people in the industry that I assumed well, it the would. The children of Lucille Ball are to be, be commended for forcing this film to be made. I think, weren't they like the driving force behind it? Yes. Then, and they were trying to get it cast for a long time and said, this is, this is a, uh, how it really was with our parents or at least like their dynamics. They were known to have a very fiery, um, contentious relationship. As, as uh, much as that's, also, I'm yeah. sure true. It's not as interesting as what would have happened. And I would love to see the footage of this, of Lucille Ball actually testifying in front of Joseph McCarthy, like hmm. which they just casually mentioned she did in the course of the film, but we don't see anything of it. And I'm like, oh my God, the one-liners, right. the sassiness, such a good point. the alpha woman, yeah. fuck you kind of energy she would have had. And she got out of it all. Like she, she was, you know, they didn't get her on anything. Like that's incredible. Like <laughs> that's a film in itself. Right. But Aaron Sorkin did, although a lot of his films, it's just like his voice, all the characters are just him. They did. Yeah. break it up a bit in this so i guess but i mean good. yeah he sets up the mccarthy trial stuff and then he just like walks away he just like, they condensed about like it. years yeah. into like one week i also agree with you richard that it had such a strange feel it does have the feeling of being something you'd watch on a saturday night on hbo or something that you know would be like a mini series like it, there was something weirdly slick about it that didn't feel even like a, a feature film to mm. me it was very odd yeah i mean I, I i do i will say in the movie's defense that i was as i am whenever this happens in a film i was so moved when the great hero j edgar hoover made a phone cameo yeah. at the end to save the day i thought that was such a nice <laughs> yeah. a Absolutely. nice acknowledgement of his role in history of being a champion very of the important. arts mm -hmm. and you know and not just that but it, it yeah. was so easy for that to have not it could only have been J. Edgar Hoover on that call. Like, I'm sitting there going, what, he get one of his friends backstage to call? Like, it could have been anyone, but he just, they're like, what's your name? And he's like, J. Edgar Hoover. And everyone's like, oh, my God. 
Well, back then, Matthew, they they didn't know that people could fake phone calls. That was that's the authenticity that I guess they achieved. Um, should we just go to predictions, Richard? Your predictions? Let's do it. Sure. Yeah, we could do the big five, as they call it. Yeah. Well, okay. Best supporting actress. Who do you think? Uh, I think that is almost certainly going to go to Ariana DeBose, who plays Anita in oh, yeah. West Side Story, as a nice echo that's to right. Rita Moreno that's, winning. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, her, her potential spoiler there could be Anjanu Ellis for King Richard, who I'm told got a very warm reception at the Academy nominee luncheon mm-hmm. just a few days before we record this. So that would be exciting either way. Um, you know, I think DeBose is really great in it. And talk about an unenviable task like, hey, you want to do what Rena Moreno did and won an Oscar yeah. for? And in also she'll her. be in the movie <laughs> yeah, with you. Right. <laughs> right. Like, like, that's a lot. And I think she really rose to the occasion best supporting actor i'm gonna predict kotzer I, I i have a feeling that maybe voters will feel that power of the dog will win enough elsewhere and so they want to spread the wealth a bit and give it to kotzer there is a chance that coda could also win best picture so maybe that math will be different but yeah wow. that's who i'm that's gonna cool. say right now that'd be nice um best actors the trickiest one yet Oof. yeah uh that one is 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 really i you know up until a couple weeks ago i would have said definitely kidman even though I don't love that movie. But yeah, Jessica Chastain winning the SAG for Tammy Faye really threw my censors out of whack. I thought that that of the five nominees for Best Actress at the Oscars, I had been saying on our podcast, Little Gold Ben, well, the four, Cruz and Stewart and Coleman, they they could all win. But Chastain is the one who, I, I think the, nom- the nomination is the win for her. And now who the hell she knows? She was so, so great in that. I guess I would say Chastain right now because she's the one with momentum. Yeah, that she was fantastic in that. I wish they had done more with that film, though, because her advocacy yeah. and also her her as a parent and him as a I don't know they Jim J Bullock. I wanted I wanted that in there that that she was an early champion and even had a talk show with a queer yeah. man, which was like a really big deal. At the time. Anyway. So best actor. Will okay. Smith, I think. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think probably that's the surest of the acting prizes for me okay. at the moment. I think people will expect a really good speech for him from him. He did a good job at the SAGs when, you know, th- th- that matters, you know, as the Academy's yeah. voting. Like, do I want to see him talk again? Um, yeah. And I think in this case they will. And, it's, you know, and I think that's great because he's, it's he's just a great so, actor. it seems like so delicate. Like you could just put a foot wrong and then just doesn't matter. You just like, you just step on, step on the wrong leaf and suddenly you're out of the running. Um, best director. I think that's Campions. Me too. Um, there is a chance because the, because ABC, there's a chance they had been talking about having just only letting Sam Elliott vote mm. for that category. <laughs> Uh, and I don't really understand. It's something to do with broadcast rights in like sure. North America. I don't know. But so if that happens, then probably not Campion. But otherwise, I think, yeah. I don't see anything in the way of that. So I guess, yeah, <laughs> so much for that. We'll allow it, a woman to win. And then what's best picture for you, in your opinion? As I see it right now, I think it's, I, I think that Power of the Dog, just because it has so many nominations, is the front runner. But that doesn't always pan out, you know. Right. Um Sometimes it does where we had, you know, Nomad Land win director picture. Uh, we had that happen for Parasite, obviously. But previous to that, there seemed to be a split. Quran would win for Roma, but then Green Book would win, mm. so on and so on. Um, so I 
I think that if there was an upset there, uh, I think Coda is probably the other movie that is surging at the moment. Um, I, I once would have said, don't look up quite cynically, even though I don't like that mm. movie. I think that's lost steam. And also Netflix, which has both of those movies, has to redirect attention toward Power of the Dog if it really wants to lo- get that win in. Um, yep. And uh, beyond that, I just, I don't know. I mean, maybe because of the Disney Plus thing, there will be a surge for West Side Story, but I think maybe it's a little bit too mm. late for that. Can we end on a negative note as we like to do on the show? No, just kidding. We <laughs> always try to end on a positive, but I'm going to take us to the negative for a second. You mentioned Don't Look Up, Richard. Are there any other, you know, there's always movies I see that make me want to tear my hair out where I'm like, did we see the same movie? Why is this nominated? Or performance from someone nominated? Were there any of those for you this year that you thought? Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, I can think of two things. Um, well, I mean, one isn't nominated. I thought that Sam Elliott's version of Bye Bye Birdie was terrible. <laughs> I don't know why he did that why he did that with that with that piece um and why he filmed it in utah yeah (laughs) which why the fuck is it in you fucking utah um (laughs) that man loves to say that word but no i and this is probably going to get me in trouble because i and i've been sort of timid about it throughout this whole long award season i just do not see what anyone sees in the lost daughter i I think it's i think it's a kind of bad movie and i need to rewatch it i understand that i'm very much a minority there but i for me it just it did not work for me i thought it was pretentious and not very deep at all that's so fascinating and you're not the first yeah learned individual that i've heard say that and didn't feel comfortable saying it out loud yeah the big question i have for that move for my ver- my my perception of that movie which i'll never be able to answer unless i can erase you know memory is i wonder if i didn't know who directed it yeah if i would feel different interesting about it. interesting yeah. yes you know what i mean interesting yes yeah. indeed mm-hmm. but i'll no, never know so, you never will yeah maybe in the next life richard Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash, you guessed it, tell me about your father, where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, Go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.